Well, this week has been a rough one. As we've watched the events in Minneapolis, Baton Rouge, and Dallas, we've all been watching and grieving and trying in our own way to grapple with what is happening in our country. At Windsor Road, we're a family. And when one member of our family hurts, we all hurt. See, we believe God has called us to be a part of the solution by being a place that builds bridges, by being a place that enacts authentic, life-changing community. We are a church where both young black men and white police officers worship the same Savior together. And we are a church that will refuse to be divided by the things that divide our country. So this morning, I want to invite you to join me in prayer. I've invited Trevon, our worship leader from this morning, and Mike Unander, who's a member here at Windsor Road and a police officer at the University of Illinois, to join me in leading this time of prayer. I'd like to invite you in a moment to join us by standing and joining hands as we pray and then sing after. As we join hands, we declare we are a family a family that has been united with each other eternally because we are eternally united with Christ. So let's stand, join hands across the aisles as you're able, and let us pray. Heavenly Father, our world is torn apart again by ugliness, by death, by racism, by fear. This altogether too familiar noise begins again, and we find ourselves overwhelmed with emotion. We cry with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? We declare with the prophets, Remember us, O Lord. We cannot make sense of a world so full of hate, anger, and pain. So your people have gathered this morning to cry out for your help. For the sins of our hands and those of our fathers, forgive us. Lord, Lord hear, our, hear our, prayer. our prayer. For the prejudice in each of our hearts, forgive us. Bring our brokenness and sin to light so you can remove it from us. Lord, hear, Lord, hear our, our prayer. prayer. Where we don't understand, help us seek understanding. Give us grace to have difficult conversations. And even if understanding never comes, help us love. Lord, hear our prayer. For the black community in our country, bring healing, wisdom, and justice. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. And for the white community, bring healing, wisdom, and justice. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. For our police officers, grant courage and integrity to perform their duties effectively, safely, and without fear. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. For those who mourn, Use us to bring them comfort. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. For our justice system, right the wrongs and give grace to those who preside to do so with wisdom and integrity. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. For those who are angry that we would not sin. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. For those prompted to destruction that we would be directed instead to rebuild. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. For those who are apathetic, that we would be moved to action. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. 
Let your church be known by love and unity. Let us be the church Jesus prayed we would be. Lord, Lord, hear our prayer. Let us be the place where all can come who feel unimportant, misunderstood, or cast out. Let us remind each individual of their inherent worth as a child of the King, and let us treat each other as such. Lord, Lord, hear hear our our prayer. prayer. And let us be a place where whether we are black, white, Asian, Latino, Democrat, or Republican, we find ourselves bound together as one. Let us be the church that makes the world declare that you must be God because of the unity they see in us. Lord, hear our prayer. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity may one day be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. We will work with each other. We will work side by side. And we'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will walk with each other. We will walk hand in hand. We will walk with each other. We will walk hand in hand. And together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Help me, help me, help me. I can't feel my legs. I can't feel my legs. Help me, where'd my legs go? Where'd they go? That cry is from Kayla Montgomery. Kayla Montgomery is a five foot, one inch tall, sparky, successful cross country runner. She is currently at David Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee, and she's there on scholarship because in high school, Kayla took first place in North Carolina State among the high school titles in long-distance running. She's number one in North Carolina. She ranked 21st in the nation. Um, And at the finish line of every race, Kayla literally collapses into the arms of her coach, Patrick Cromwell. She cries out, help me, help me, help me. I can't feel my legs. I can't feel my legs. Where'd my legs go? Help me. And her coach scoops her up and carries her to the infield 
where uh, he ices her legs. Her parents come in to, to ice her down until the feeling returns. Kayla Montgomery has MS. She was diagnosed with it at age 14. She'd been playing soccer and uh, she was in an accident there on the field. She lost feeling in her legs. And several months later, when the feeling returned, she quit soccer and took up running. And she told her coach, I, I want to run fast, so train me hard. And with gritty determination, Kayla began logging the miles, 40 miles a week, six days a week, and Kayla got faster and faster and faster, and she started winning. What happens is about a mile into her races, her body temperature increases, her legs go numb, the MS blocks the nerve signals from her legs to her brain. And that gives her a peculiar advantage because she can move at steady speeds which cause other runners pain that she cannot sense. At the same time, the intensity triggers weakness and instability and her legs go numb. And as they go numb, she can continue moving forward uh, as if on autopilot uh, but if there's any disruption whatsoever, if she were to stumble against another runner's foot, or if she were to stop suddenly, she would lose control, the wheels would come off, and she would crash. So at the finish line of every race, she crosses the line and crumples. And just before the momentum sends her crashing to the ground, her coach braces to catch her, where he carries her aside as her competitors finish and her parents are there, and they swoop in, icing her down. And minutes later, the sensation returns, and she rises, ready for another chance at forestalling a disease that one day may force her to trade the track for a wheelchair. Help me, help me, help me. My legs are gone, my legs are gone. I can't feel my legs. Where'd they go? Where'd they go? Kayla's cry, I believe, has been the cry of our country this past week. Help me, help me, where'd my legs go? And it most certainly is the cry of the Old Testament book of Lamentations. This playlist of five poems, all of which mourn that historical event in 586 B.C., the fall of Jerusalem, the complete destruction of the temple and the exile of God's people into Babylonian captivity. And this morning, we conclude our series on Lamentations by considering Lamentations chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. You'll find Lamentations 5 on page 690, 690 of your church Bible. And what's unique about Lamentations chapter 5 is that it is a prayer. It is a community prayer. We, us, our. And so then with that in mind, uh, what I would like for us to do is read Lamentations 5 together. The verses are up on the screen. I want us to see what the big idea of Lamentations 5 is, what the main point that the poet wants us to get and then I want us to see how that big idea unfolds throughout the chapter. And then I want to talk about what it means for us today. 
So let's, let's read Lamentations chapter 5. Will you please join me as we read together? Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This is God's word. Can you hear Kayla's cry, help me, help me. I can't feel my legs. Where'd they go? Help me. Such is the cry of Lamentations. And Lamentations chapter 5 specifically is the shortest and most abrupt book in this playlist. It's as if the poet has run out of steam. No more strength. No more strength. Whereas Lamentations chapters 1 through 4 uh, carry an acrostic structure based on the Hebrew alphabet. We saw that in each of the chapters. Here by the time we get to Lamentations chapter 5, yes, there are 22 verses. Each verse would correspond to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Only this time there's no acrostic. The acrostic dissolves. And now there's just a cry to God for help. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? The only difference between the poet and Kayla is that Kayla can see her coach across the finish line. Israel can't see God. And that leads us to the big idea here. Because this prayer is a cry. Oh Lord, see us. Oh Lord, restore us. There it is. 
Oh, Lord, see us. Please see us. Oh, Lord, restore us. Please restore us. That's it. That's what the poet is saying here. The community is saying, crying out to God, see us, restore us. Chapter 5 has two parts. And verses 1 through 18, Lord, see us. And verses 19 to 22, Lord, restore us. So let's just talk about each of those parts, beginning with see us. That's in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. So in in verse 1, when uh, the poet says, remember, it's not as if God has amnesia. That's not what we're talking about. It's that Israel feels invisible. Israel feels insignificant. Israel feels uh, ignored. So to ask God to remember is to ask God to see, to look and to see. God, pay attention. Verse 2 speaks of the word inheritance. What is that? That's the land, the land that now belongs to the pagan Babylonian empire. And verse 4 speaks of simple commodities such as uh, wood and water. That which was once the free possession of Israel is a commodity for which Israel must now purchase. Why, this water once came from wells on our property and now we have to pay for it? The wood came from trees on our property. Now we have to pay for it? God, help us. I can't feel my legs. They're gone. Help me. And then verse 8 speaks of slaves ruling over us. Who are these slaves? Quite likely they're the slaves and servants of the emperor Nebuchadnezzar, lord of Babylon. So think about this. Israel, once the slave nation of Egypt but freed by the power of God, is now ruled by the lowest ranks of the occupying imperial power, only this time there is no hope of an exodus in sight. Verse 9 speaks of getting bread at the risk of life. So any secret growing of food or any gathering of vegetation for food outside the specified areas constitutes trespassing. But wait, how could we be trespassing? Wasn't this land once ours? Not anymore. And verse 11 speaks of women who are raped. By whom? By the Babylonians. So the raping and exploitation of the vulnerable were ways in which an imperial power communicated to the conquered that they are so powerless they can't even protect the most vulnerable among them. In verse 12, princes who are hung up by their hands, that's either an early form of crucifixion or a poetic way of saying that the leaders are powerless to help. And then verse 14 speaks of old men having left the city gate. What does that mean? Well, you must understand that in the ancient world, the city gate was not just a literal city gate, but the city gate, the entrance to the city was also, well, it was like our county courthouse. It was a place of judicial review. It was a place where legal disputes were settled In other words, wisdom was to be found among the mature and aged at the public gates of the city. But not now. No gates. No wisdom. 
And why? Verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. There's no more king. King's gone. No king, no throne, no law, nothing. But the summary statement in verse 18 of the entire situation. This short phrase summarizes it all. Mount Zion lies desolate. Jackals prowl over it. You remember in chapter 1 when Mount Zion was personified as a grieving widow? Lady Zion, this grieving woman, five exhausting chapters later, Lady Zion is no longer a lady. She's no longer a city on a hill. She's no longer the Lord's holy mountain. No longer the mount of the Lord's temple. Instead, she's just a pile of charcoal rubble. That's it. Raised to the ground, trampled by the nations, soaked in blood, ravaged by sword and fire, reduced to dust and death, the joy of the whole world has become the laughingstock of the whole world. Now you know why the poet says, Lord, look. Lord, please see. Church, I I look at the rubble in Lamentations chapter 5, and how can I not think of the rubble that's piling up in our nation today concerning the senseless shootings and the racial injustice. And I'm trying to make sense of this senselessness in America, and I don't know about you, but I find myself defensive, frustrated, shell-shocked, and scared. I find myself defensive. I'm defensive over the phrase privileged race, because I am of the privileged race. Do you know in Oklahoma, my home state, in 1955, six years before I was born, a law was passed prohibiting marriage between whites and blacks, carried a $500 fine and up to five years in prison. So had my son married my daughter-in-law, Ablaza, then and there, they would have been charged with a crime. You know, as my sons were growing up and I taught them to drive, I never, ever had to worry, you know, about them being shot after being pulled over. It was never on my radar. It's all too easy for me to believe in a land of opportunity that it just takes hard work and a college degree to succeed. Well, true enough, if you are of a privileged race. But that ignores the brutal fact that for centuries in our country, a lifetime of hard work came with no opportunity for success to those who are not of a privileged race. But see, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that, which is exactly why I need to hear that. I'm not only defensive, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated with useless comparisons like, well, you know, what happened in Baton Rouge and St. Paul was bad, but, but not as bad as Dallas. As if the body count of one cancels the grief or remorse of the other. 
I'm frustrated that there's a clear problem in our country in terms of the safety of African Americans before the law. What happened last week is not new. And to say otherwise is denial. And when you're in denial, the sickness will never go away. You're only as sick as your secrets. So I'm defensive. I'm frustrated. I'm shell-shocked. I'm shell-shocked by the videos that I saw of the deaths of Alton Sterling in Philando Castile. I'm shell-shocked by excessive use of force. And I'm shell-shocked from the calculated sniper attacks on the Dallas police, leading to the deaths of husbands and fathers. Lauren Arenz, Michael Smith, Michael Kroll, Patrick Zamaripa, and Brent Thompson. And I'm shell-shocked over the seven other officers who were wounded, along with two civilians. Dallas Police Chief David Brown praised his department for their professionalism and courage in protecting uh, the streets of Dallas. And while citizens fled gunfire, those officers ran toward it. Chief Brown said, we do not feel much support most days. Let's not make today most days. I'm defensive, I'm frustrated, I'm shell-shocked, and I feel scared. I feel scared over the African-Americans in our church family who could be treated as innocent victims of injustice. I feel scared that a grisly video of their deaths might go viral on social media, and I feel scared for a funeral that I might have to do. And I'm also scared for the lives of the noble and honorable men and women in our church family who serve in our police departments and who protect our democracy and who preserve our safety and who deserve our support. And I'm particularly scared for my son who is a police officer in our community and who is a man of God and who is married to a beautiful, godly African-American woman. And they share our granddaughter. And I just get choked up at the very thought of hearing the horror of his death in the line of duty. Kayla's cry is Lamentations 5. Lord, please help. Please see us. And as we consider the question, well, how, you know, how did we get here? We have to agree with Professor and Dr. Jarvis Williams of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. Sociological, psychological, or cultural methods of extinguishing racism fall short of curing the real problem of racism, and that is sin. Treason against the holy God. Idolatry in exalting one particular race above another. It's sin. 
And isn't that what the text says? Verse 7, our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. But it's not just the fathers who are at fault. Verses 16 and 17, woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. When we, as a nation, disinvite God, when we disinvite him from our homes and our neighborhoods and our schools and our courthouses, this is what happens. Lamentations chapter 5. Life becomes unmanageable. To disinvite the presence of God is at one and the same time to invite the presence of prowling jackals. So you just have to decide what it is you want. Do you want the presence of God or do you want the prowling of jackals? Do you want Jehovah God or do you want jackals? What do you want? And you know, it does no good to say, well, you know, I'm... I have a black friend. I don't see what the problem is. Really? Or, or I, you know, I didn't personally do anything. See, you're missing the point. You're missing the point, the difference between individual sin and corporate sin. And you belong to a country that has sinned corporately, as I have. And just as Nehemiah prayed in Nehemiah chapter 1, a prayer of corporate repentance where he asked God for forgiveness for the sins of his ancestors. Nehemiah wasn't around when the Babylonians first started circling Jerusalem. We all know that. But in Nehemiah chapter 1, he pleads for forgiveness for the sins of his ancestors and for his own household. And these verses call us to do the same. They call us to lament, God, this hurts. God, we're sorry for our part. I'm sorry for my part. God, please help. Please help. Please help. And James in the New Testament exhorts us to do the same. James 4, 9 and 10. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourself before the Lord. Proud are nothing but ground for prowling jackals. But God will exalt the humble. What do you want? What do you want? Well, as you can see, Lamentations just doesn't end very happy, does it? No, it doesn't. And that's frustrating to us Americans because we want things fixed in a 42-minute TV show or we want things fixed in a 2-hour and 15-minute movie. We want it fixed. We want it fixed by the time I can finish my popcorn. And this isn't going to get fixed in a bag of popcorn.
It's going to get fixed in God's timing. You see, despair isn't the last word. It's not. Hope is the last word. We get a glimpse of that in verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. So, so the Babylonians mocked. They mocked. Oh, what kind of a God would destroy his own temple? The kind who doesn't need one in the first place. Lord, you don't need a temple. You don't need a house of brick and stone. You don't need a preferred presidential candidate to feel better about your faith. Lord, you are still in charge. You are sovereign. You are king. So God, now that you see us, God, restore us. Restore us. Verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Restore us to yourself. Now, notice he didn't say restore us to our house or restore us to our land or restore us to our possessions or restore us to our stuff. That's not what we read, is it? Well, God, we just want you. We want to be right with you. We want to live with you. We want to know you. We want to walk with you. And only you can make that happen. Only you can change our heart. God, change my heart. Congress can't do that. There's not a law that our Congress can pass that will change my heart. Only God can do that. Only God can restore us. And that is what the worshiping community is asking God to do. God, see me. God, see us. God, restore me. God, restore us. And thank God he has on another pile of rubble. Six centuries later, on a rubble of human bones and human skulls called Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of execution, where Jesus, verse 12, our Prince of Peace, his hands were lifted and tied on a Roman cross. Where in verse 14, the old men did in fact leave the gates where they shook their fist at the Son of God and said, if you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. Where in verse 16, the crown that fell from our heads landed on his, the crown of thorns. And where in verse 17, Christ's heart his heart became sick, pierced for our transgressions, his eyes dimmed from the beating. He, who was supremely privileged, became scorned so that through his crucifixion we might be restored. And we have been restored. Restore us to yourself. And he has through Christ. Is that not what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 13 through 16? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Us both. Who's us both? Those were the races who were at enmity with one another in the first century. The Hebrew people and the Greek people. 
They've made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might in himself create one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. So now I no longer need to be defensive over the phrase privileged race. For in Christ all races are privileged and elect. Chosen by God in his son. Who has created one new race of the races. One new race from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. And I no longer need to be frustrated. Because the spirit of Christ has been sent upon the people of Christ. To indwell our hearts through faith. And whereupon we receive the fruit of the spirit. Specifically the fruit of patience. And I no longer need to be shell-shocked because Jesus forewarned us that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I no longer need to be scared either because God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And so it is with spirit-filled power that we move out in our culture carrying with us the love of Christ. We are proactive as we meet and converse and connect and we approach our brothers and sisters in Christ of another race. I want to hear your heart about what's going on this week. Tell me. And it is with love, with love that we offer forgiveness for past sins. And it's with love that we see our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are of another race and you are in Christ, then you are closer to me than someone of my own race not in Christ. That's what it means to belong to the family of God. And it is with self-control, power, love, and self-control, poise, spirit-filled poise, that we live such quality lives that those who oppose us may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Wouldn't it be something that instead of the viral videos that go out on social media concerning violence, if more and more videos would go viral expressing and showing and demonstrating the love and service and selflessness of spirit-empowered, spirit-filled people, uh, people of God and that the world would say, I want what you have. I want what you have. And so you see, we become the answer to the cries that we're making. Lord, see us. Ah, but we now have the eyes of Christ. And he sees through our eyes so that no one in this room is invisible and no one is ignored and no one is insignificant. We see through the eyes of Christ. And we see... We see those who are serving and we pay attention and we take note and we honor those. You know the happiest moment of my day on Friday, especially compared to this heavy news that we've received this past week. The happiest moment of my day was the privilege and the honor of getting to pray over Brett Johnson's retirement walkout ceremony with our Champagne Fire Department. He served over 23 years, nobly, honorably, Protecting our community, God protected his family while he protected us. 
See, we see, we're going to see that more. We're going to pay attention to that more. We're going to take note of that more. And we're also going to be involved in restoration. We're going to be about the ministry of peacemaking. Because peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And so we're going to initiate peacemaking moments in prayer and in conversation and in relationships so that those see this room, what happens with our relationships. This is a better way. It is a better way because it's Jesus' way. It's Jesus' way. And all of this as we look toward the day, the day promised to us in Revelation 7, 9, uh, 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh God, see us. Oh God, restore us. Restore us to yourself, oh Lord, that we might be restored. Amen.